Welcome to That You May Know Him, a podcast dedicated to helping you know Christ better than ever before. Hey everyone, this is Blake, and welcome back to That You May Know Him, the podcast that's dedicated to helping you know Christ better than ever before. Once again, I'm your host, Blake Barbera, and I'm excited to be with you today for episode 19, and we're going to talk about uh, a very important event that's recorded in the Bible, one of the only events that's actually recorded in all four of the gospel records. We're talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, an event that many Christians know about, have read about, have heard about, but often don't know the significance of. This event is a huge one in the lifetime of Jesus Christ. It has incredible significance for Christians today. It had incredible significance for the Jewish disciples and followers of Jesus then, when it first took place, when it occurred. And so we're going to get into it, and we're going to try to get into some of the more nuanced, some of the more deep uh, points of significance and the way that this event not only fulfills Old Testament prophecy, but foreshadows future events. As you've heard me say on this show many times before, the entire Bible is one single unit. It has one author, and it is meant to be read as a single unit. And so understanding how the Old and New Testaments go together, how nearly everything that happens in the New Testament is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, is hugely helpful and hugely beneficial in the formation of the Christian life. It not only helps us understand where we've come from, but also where we're going. So that being said, I'm excited to jump right into this topic today. As we approach uh, Resurrection Sunday, this is Holy Week, so it's a fitting time to talk about the triumphal entry of Jesus. I'm going to start out by just reading the account from Luke's gospel. So like I mentioned before, outside of the resurrection of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. This is one of the few events that uh, is recorded in all four Gospels. All of them have some version of what happened that day when Jesus entered Jerusalem in what has come to be referred to as the triumphal entry. Uh, And I'm just going to read 12 verses from Luke chapter 19 to give us a little context. And I'll, I'll mostly be working off of Luke's account, but I'll I'll also go into a few of the other accounts, too, as we talk about some of the deep biblical significance surrounding this event in human history. So Luke 19, 28 through 40 goes like this. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, 
So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they bought and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Again, that was Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. There's really three main aspects of this event that I think are important to look at uh, for understanding exactly how significant and how huge the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was. And we're going to look at all of these through the backdrop, through the lens, if you will, of biblical prophecy. Some people might roll their eyes when they hear me say that. Maybe they're like, man, you talk about prophecy way too much. Well, the only reason I talk about it so much is because when you start to look for it in the scripture, you see that it's actually everywhere. It's prevalent all through the Bible. And so every, every detail of this event, the triumphal entry of Jesus, has some grounding somewhere else in the Bible, either in the Old Testament or further along in the New Testament. So we're going to look at these three specific points, these three specific aspects of the triumphal entry, and we'll talk about how they're sort of brought into fuller view through understanding the context of the entire Bible. So the, the first aspect that I think is important to look at uh, when we're talking about this event is the location of Jesus as he begins his entry into Jerusalem. So one of the reasons I picked Luke, Luke's gospel, to read his account of the triumphal entry is because Luke is the gospel writer who sort of emphasizes this voyage that Jesus is making toward Jerusalem. So in Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And this, we know from reading the context of the other gospels, wasn't Jesus' first time to Jerusalem. Well, we know even from Luke. Jesus visits Jerusalem as a child in Luke. But during his ministry, he had visited Jerusalem before this. Uh, but this is going to be the final trip to Jerusalem. And so it's a big deal. Uh, and this is sort of at the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry, where everywhere he's going, miracles are happening, people are coming to hear him, but then also he's getting rejected some of the places that he goes. One of the last places he goes on his way to Jerusalem in Luke's gospel, the people don't want to hear what he has to say. Uh, and so so Luke is the one that really focuses on the fact that Jesus has has been journeying toward Jerusalem. This wasn't just, you know, jump in the car and cruise down or jump on a horse and ride down to Jerusalem. We'll be there tomorrow. No, this was a trek, a pilgrimage, a voyage that had been taking place for weeks, perhaps even months. And it was also acting simultaneously as the culmination of Jesus's ministry on earth and to the area 
that he lived in, Judea. Uh, he starts up in Nazareth in Galilee, his own area, and he works his way down. And he, he visits a whole bunch of places as he goes. But his entry into Jerusalem starts at the Mount of Olives. Uh, now, the Mount of Olives is that that that's the location that we're talking about when we're talking about his 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 entry into Jerusalem and the location where he begins his entry from the Mount of Olives is significant for several reasons um gee it's about a mile or a mile and a half from Jerusalem first off so um it's a Sabbath day's journey we learn not only at the end of Luke but also in Acts um it's the place where Jesus would actually go with his disciples and ascend up into heaven from. Mount of Olives is the place where Jesus not only ascended into heaven when he left, it's the place where the angels told the disciples he will come and return just as he left. Mount of Olives is hugely significant in Jewish prophecy. In the book of Zechariah, uh, we read, and this is this is a prophecy most Bible scholars, most Christian biblical, you know, exegetes and people who study this stuff believe is talking about uh, the second coming of Christ. And I happen to completely agree with that. It's definitely a messianic prophecy in the minds of most Jewish people. Uh, Zechariah 14 verses 1 through 4 says this, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. It gets gets a little graphic here. Uh, half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall be shall move northward and the other half southward. Many, many, many Christians believe that this is talking about this passage from Zechariah, what will be the, the last days, the final days of the Great Tribulation. Uh, and and that at, when that ends, Jesus will touch down on the Mount of Olives, and the mountain will actually be split in two. And so he will return to earth, and he will conquer. At that point, he will conquer his enemies. So the Mount of Olives, hugely significant for Jewish prophecy, for Messianic prophecy. It's the place from where the Messiah will conquer his enemies. It will be split in two. It's also the place where Jesus ascended into heaven, we're told, by the angels. He will return just as you saw him go to the same place. Um, it's also where Jesus gave his final extended discourse to the disciples about the end times and about his return within the last three days of his life. So after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, which is uh, in most people's minds three days before his death. So he enters Jerusalem. He comes back out each night and sleeps somewhere on the other side of the mountain, probably in Bethany. Uh, but it's also where he stops with his disciples and he has this extended conversation in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21 uh, about 
his return. And he, he tells him all about what the world is going to be like when he returns. And he famously says, no one knows the day or the hour. No one knows specifically when I, when I will return except the father. But then he gives us all sorts of indicators about when that will happen. So that conversation took place on the Mount of Olives. Hugely important. And Luke is careful in his gospel account to tell us about all the surrounding areas. He drew near to Bethpage, to Bethany. He lists all these towns and villages that are right, right leading up to the Mount of Olives and then Jerusalem on the other side. And then he is very sure to let us know that the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem begins at the Mount of Olives. And it will be exactly like that when he returns also, just in case you didn't know that. It's an important thing to know. Coincidentally, people in Jerusalem, uh, even to this day, every year on Palm Sunday, they uh, they do this same trek. They start on the Mount of Olives and they take this mile, mile and a half walk into Jerusalem with palm branches. Something I would I would love to to hopefully do at some point in life is to join that procession and just soak it in what it must have been like for Jesus to be coming down that mountain riding on a donkey with many, many, many of his disciples and followers and people who recognized who he was, receiving him as the king, entering his city. Sort of leads us perfectly, perfect segue into the second important aspect uh, of the triumphal entry and understanding the significance of this event. And that is the vessel, the vessel that Jesus rode on. It was actually an animal. It was a donkey. Uh, Matthew refers to it as a donkey. Luke refers to it as the cult, uh, the cult of a donkey. All these passages are rooted in a prophecy in also in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter nine. Uh, and we'll get into that in a second. Donkeys were the preferred method of transportation for these types of entries. And there was a specific reason for that. When I say these types of entries, I'm talking about these triumphal entries that took place often in the ancient world uh, when kings entered a city, kings or leaders or, or rulers. We'll get to more of that also in a little bit. But donkeys represented victory for one main reason. When you were riding a donkey, you were no longer at war. That was the imagery. That was the reasoning behind choosing a donkey Uh, when a king would enter into a city. If you were going to go to war, you would get on a war horse. You would jump in a chariot. To ride a donkey is basically a pronouncement. It's signifying the fact that I'm done. I've already won the battle. I've conquered, and now my fighting's done. Now I'm going to honk on this donkey, and I'm going to cruise. I'm going to go at a nice, easy pace. It's sort of like would be the difference between jumping in a tank or a Humvee you know, and like sliding into a Pinto to just cruise down, you know, down Ocean Boulevard. Like those two, those two vehicles give off very different impressions, don't they? That's why kings often rode donkeys when they entered cities in a triumphal procession. As I said, this is the, also the fact that Jesus was riding on a donkey is the direct fulfillment of biblical prophecy. This is from Zechariah chapter 9. It says this, and just so you know, the context of this passage is after God has defeated in Zechariah, after God is prophesied, he's prophesied the defeat of Israel's enemies, and then a king's going to ride in to Jerusalem 
on a donkey. It says this, starting in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. That's like the son of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So you see, even in that passage, it talks about, I will cut off the chariot and the war horse. No more warring, no more battle. The donkey that the king will ride on represents victory and it represents peace. Now, coincidentally, this Old Testament passage, I believe, is a foreshadowing not just of the first coming of Christ, but of the second coming of Christ. And you see that often in the Old Testament, the two are intertwined, uh, the first and the second coming. That's why many, 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 many Jewish scholars still to this day debate, is there going to be one Messiah or is there going to be two Messiahs? There's a, 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 a extensive uh, field of study in Jewish scholarship known as dual messiism. Because there's many Jews that be- they, they believe there's going to be two messiahs because they can't settle the two different pictures that you get in the Old Testament. One is a messiah who comes to serve, who's a suffering servant, uh, who lays his life down for his people, and the other is a conquering king. Often they go together. What we as Christians know and believe is that it's not actually that there's two messiahs. There's one messiah. He comes twice. The first time he came as an infant. The second time he'll return as a king. And when he touches down, mountains will split in two. The other really important thing about the donkey, and this uh, is told to us in Luke's account at least, chapter 19, uh, verse 30, is that the animal had never been ridden before. And this was yet another sign of Jesus's kingship. Kings in the ancient world did not ride animals that had been ridden by other people. Like, that was just period, end of story. And for something like this, for a triumphal entry, for a triumphal procession, these took place pretty regularly. Uh, Kings would often, kings or rulers would often select a new animal that had never been ridden before. And then that animal would become theirs for life. Once an animal was ridden by a king, it was never to be ridden after that by a commoner, likely by anybody, but, uh, you know, I mean, I guess probably, uh, members of the King's families might ride the animal, but, uh, once a King rode an animal, it would net, would never be ridden after that by a commoner, but also a, a King would never ride an animal, uh, that had been ridden by someone else. That was just sort of a customary thing. And it was definitely a sign. So the fact that all the gospel records, record the fact that it had that the donkey Jesus rode had never been ridden is a clear clear indicator that Jesus is displaying his kingship his divine kingship now the interesting thing about this is Jesus is at once displaying his kingship the people are are recognizing and admonishing it but the ideas that they have are a lot different than the idea that Jesus had right because Jesus understands that he's coming into Jerusalem to die, to be the sacrificial lamb. He's the king, all right, but he's going to 
be the sacrificial lamb, the one who lays his life down. The people expect him to conquer and to take over. And it's not until much, much later on in the story when that becomes clear that Jesus, oh, he, he will, he will conquer and he will take over one day. It just hasn't happened yet. So the third really important element, and this is, this is definitely my favorite one about the triumphal entry is the praise of the people, the praise of the disciples, the people who are waiting for Jesus and Jesus's response to their adoration and to what they're saying. This event is intended to echo several significant events that people of this day would have either known about or experienced. So I've said several times already that there were triumphal entries that took place in the ancient world. This wasn't like a foreign idea to people. In fact, the Bible doesn't actually call Jesus's entry into Jerusalem the triumphal entry. That's the name that scholars have given it. Roman generals were really ones that made triumphal entries famous, although they weren't the ones that started it. It started even before Roman generals. I mean, you could go all the way back into far into antiquity to to find examples of this. I mean, the Assyrian kings would go out and conquer and they would return and it would be a huge procession. Greeks would do this. But um, Jesus's entry specifically probably took place within days of when Pontius Pilate journeyed from Caesarea and came to Jerusalem. And Josephus actually records that every year when Pontius Pilate came from Caesarea to Jerusalem, many people don't know that, Pontius Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem year round. He was over the entire jurisdiction of the the territory of Judea or most of it during his time. He lived in Caesarea most of the time. He came to Jerusalem for the feastal holidays in order to keep things in line and to make sure there were no uprisings. Uh, but Pontius Pilate was not a regular presence year-round in Jerusalem. So Josephus records that Pontius Pilate, every year when he made his trip to Jerusalem, it would be a triumphal procession. Uh, he would ride in like a victor and, and you know, dressed in certain colors, and it was a big deal. Uh, and this this was this was more or less commonplace. Um, there's a famous account of Alexander the Great after he defeated the Persians. This is going back a few hundred years before Christ now. Uh, but when he entered Jerusalem and the high priest came out to greet him, it, it started off as this triumphal procession. Um, the Maccabean rulers that ruled uh, about, a, well, for about 100 years within a century of Jesus' lifetime. There was this brief period of Jewish independence uh, before Jesus was born. Within the century and a half of Jesus' birth, the Maccabean rulers Several of them had triumphal processions into Jerusalem. So this was something that was more or less common, especially if it had just happened within a few days when Pontius Pilate arrived in Jerusalem. Um, now, the palm branch thing is sort of unique because John's gospel says that uh, the people were waving palm branches when Jesus made his entry. All the gospel records account that uh, people were laying down branches and cloaks, right? They were making sort of a, a, a red carpet, a runway for this king who was entering into Jerusalem. Um, but John mentions the palm branches. That 
was definitely likely a sign. Uh, palm branches had become a sign of, of Jewish nationalism, more or less. Uh, you see this all through the Maccabean period. You see it on various coins from the time of Jesus. That's what the palm branches more or less represented. Um, but it's also interesting because the palm branches are what shadow or foreshadow what's going to happen in the future. Um, in Revelation chapter 7, what most people read, interpret as uh, this gathering together of the saints, either before the tribulation, after the great tribulation, whatever, however you place it, uh, saints are gathered from every tribe, nation, and tongue in Revelation 7 before the throne of God and before the Lamb. And what do they have in their hands? They have palm branches in their hands. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 goes like this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's really really beautiful and really significant. Uh, so this is the, perhaps the most critical element. Other, I mean, you could definitely make the case the Mount of Olives foreshadows the return of Christ because it, it foreshadows messianic events all through the Bible. But this, the, the palm branch aspect of his triumphal entry definitely foreshadows this gathering in Revelation where the people, the saints, the church is gathered together around the throne of God and the Lamb and they all have palm branches in their hands. Um, I think probably the most significant, like if you, I said this part, we're talking now about uh, the praise of the people and Jesus' response. And we've talked a little bit about these, uh, these other triumphal processions that took place and the palm branches. They all represent something for the people. But the most significant aspect of this can be seen in the words of the people who were there that day. Most Christians have some idea of what was being spoken that day, what was being shouted, declared by the people. Uh, if you don't know specifically, it will at least sound familiar. We've all heard the expression, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. That's, uh, I mean, there's Christian worship songs that are made after that. Hosanna, we worship you. I mean, these are... These are, uh, I mean, th this is a, a, a well-known popular phrase and a popular, uh, it's actually become sort of like a name, uh, Hosanna in the highest uh, of Jesus Christ. But it's actually has very specific meaning for the Jewish people. And it had very specific meaning for the people who were there that day. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David is a Jewish liturgical prayer that was I should say it's a part of a Jewish liturgical prayer that was prayed every feast day and during the days surrounding feasts, feastal weeks. It's called the Hallel and it's Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Yeah, the people that day were actually quoting scripture and it wasn't new to them. This was something that they recited liturgically, like I said, every Jewish feast day. And, and during Jewish holidays, the Hallel. Uh, the interesting thing, and what really, really stands out, is that they seem to be ascribing 
this praise to Jesus Christ himself. And this becomes very clear when you realize, when you see the Pharisees and how they react to this in these records, in Luke and in Matthew. So Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David is actually, well, Hosanna uh, is actually from Psalm 118.25. In Hebrew, it's Hosha'ina, Hosha'ina. That's what we say as uh, Hosanna. Those are the words in Hebrew. In Psalm 118, that phrase is Hosha'ina Adonai. Save us, we pray, O Lord. The entire passage now, I'm not going to read the entire, you know, liturgical formula. That's that's five six psalms, but uh, I'll read just Psalm 118, 25 to 27. It goes like this: Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. And he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the feastal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. That's, uh, that's the, one of the last verses in the Hallel, Psalm 118. They were emphasizing this one aspect of it. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosha'ina, Psalm 118.25, which is save us, we pray, Adonai. Or save us, we pray, O Lord. Literally in Hebrew, it says, save us, we pray, Yahweh. That's the, the, the first thing you learn when you learn biblical Hebrew is that when you read the word, the name, the, the, the holy name of God in a Hebrew Bible, Yahweh, you don't actually say the word Yahweh. You say Adonai, which means Lord. So this is something that a lot of people don't get oftentimes when the Old Testament's being quoted in the New Testament, and it says, O Lord, it's actually the word Yahweh. You have to go back. It's not, it's not the word God. It's the actual holy name of God that God gave to Moses when the people ask, Who sent me? God tells Moses, first person ever, he gives him his name. He says, I am sent you. Yahweh, I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. What's the significance of this exactly? The people were not only recognizing Jesus as a king, although they were very much doing that. Palm branches, Israel, he's on a donkey. They're receiving him as Messiah. Even bigger deal. They're acknowledging who this person is as he's coming in. It says in Luke that because of the works that he did, they recognized him as the Messiah. But even more than that, the thing that made the Pharisees so livid is they were recognizing him as the son of God. They were recognizing Jesus's divine origins right there that day, which is why the Pharisees say to Jesus in Luke 19, as the people are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, we pray. Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. It says in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why would they say that? It's been pointed out by by many uh, Jewish scholars. It wasn't that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, that he was 
that he was accused of blasphemy. It's that he claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be born from above. He claimed to be of divine origins. That is what was blasphemous. The Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Because these people are reciting the Hallel. They're reciting our prayer that we say every feast day, but they're attributing their praise to you. How could you let them do this? Rebuke them. This is blasphemous. And Jesus responds how? Luke 19, 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If these people were not praising me, even the stones would cry out. That is an amazing response by Jesus. We learn in Romans 8 that all of creation groans, groans for redemption. There's, there's imagery all through the Bible of nature itself, the earth itself crying out for its maker. It, it's actually, there's actually imagery of this in the Hallel itself. In Psalm 114, uh, it's verses 5 and 6. It says, what ails you, the sea uh, that you flee? It says, um, I'm trying to recall, I could just look, but uh, oh, mountains that you skip like rams. That's what it is. The mountains, they skip like rams. The hills, they skip like lambs. It's this, this picture of nature itself praising, reaching out in praise, recognizing its maker. It's really, really an amazing thing. That's how this passage culminates. That's how it culminates. And in Matthew, it's a similar thing. Jesus enters, he goes into the temple, and the Pharisees get upset again because the people are acknowledging the divine sonship of Jesus Christ. And Jesus rebukes them, basically as a way of saying, you should be the ones that recognize who I am, but you don't. This... uh, also reminds me personally, I think of Matthew 26, when Jesus is actually before Caiaphas. He's actually before the high priest. Uh, verses 30, uh, 63 to 66 of Matthew 26 goes like this. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us if you're the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. There you go. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. That is why Jesus Christ was crucified for claiming to be the son of God, for claiming to have divine origins. And that is exactly what he does at the end of the triumphal entry as the people pray and praise and worship and shout and recite the Hallel. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosha'ina. Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. As Jesus, the king, enters his city in order to lay his life down, that they didn't know or expect, I believe. But in order to lay his life down, the people receive this king and they honor him and they honor him for who he is, which was, which is the son of God. Those are just some of the things that I think are really, really important and really significant and help to give us a much a much deeper, much richer, much more vivid picture of the significance of this incredible event, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. 
It's the event that normally kicks off our celebration of Holy Week, Resurrection Sunday. Some people call it Easter. Some Christians say there's nothing wrong with calling it Easter. <laughs> Easter, uh, well, I won't get into all that. Easter, the, the name Easter is actually named after a, an infamous pagan, Ishtar. But uh, so I, I actually prefer the name Resurrection Sunday. But that's neither here nor there. The point, the triumphal entry of Jesus is an incredibly important, important event in human history. It not only fulfills biblical prophecy, it not only speaks to and validates the kingship, the messiahship of Jesus Christ, it also validates crystal clearly his sonship and his divine origins as he enters the city and receives the praise of the people. And it also foreshadows his return. It also foreshadows the fact that he will come once again and he will touch down on the Mount of Olives. I don't think he's going to be riding a donkey this time. No, he's going to touch down and the mountains are going to split. And the next time anyone sees him, he's going to be on a horse, on a, on a, on a, on a white horse, ready ready to defeat his enemies once and for all. The first time he came, he defeated sin in the flesh. The next time he comes, same place, he'll defeat his enemies once and for all, those that oppose God and God's people. So I hope this has been uh, insightful and encouraging. I hope you'll appreciate even more than ever the significance, the truthfulness, the history behind these events we read about in the Bible. And I hope it will encourage your faith to believe like never before, to seek him like never before, to trust the word of God like never before, and ultimately that all those things will lead to you knowing him like never before. So, my friends, it's a week for us to celebrate. Christ has come, he has died, and he has risen for you and for me. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again as King of kings and Lord of lords. We have something great and incredible to look forward to. Have a great week. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Stay blessed. Live love. Be well. And I'll talk to you next week on That You May Know Him. I'm Blake Barbera. Thanks for listening.